The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And Martha, is that working now? In addition to her great kindness, has agreed to ring the bells because I am a restlessness and agitation type, and if I have to ring the bells, then I can't pay attention to anything else, but how much time? <laughs> I, I've got the clock. <laughs> it's always so great to be here. Um, it's also so great to see how much is flourishing here. Not only the new retreat center, but how much is flourishing in this space. That, you know, you... It feels... And, you know, this is on no information whatsoever, except this morning. But, and of course I get the weekly stuff. But it feels like the reality of the retreat center is acting as a support system for this space. And vice versa, I assume. And that's wonderful. That's just terrific. Okay. My topic for today is letting go. Um, And I have so many confused things that it's going to be a hodgepodge. All right? (laughs) and I want to start with a couple of very obvious points and then I want to start with happy things we've got a lot of sadness and I think sometimes it's really good to let ourselves have a foundation of joy that strengthens us in the face of sadness so As all of us know, (laughs) what we let go of is clinging. Now, sometimes that involves letting go of the object, and sometimes it doesn't. But the letting go is about clinging, and the clinging, as we all know, is about suffering. Or as Gil says, if you cling, you will suffer. Well, I'm 68. My project's been running for 13 years. It amazes me. Um, I have finally somebody who is willing to take on what is take onable of my work. My Khmer director runs the show. Um, And... What we've done this year is we've become a legal organization in Cambodia. And I'm working on the process of creating a legal support organization in America so that when I die, they can keep working. Maybe they can expand. We're now called Brahma Vihara Cambodia, not only because we work not only on AIDS, but on other things, but also because maybe there'll be a Brahma Vihara Laos, Maybe there'll be a Brahmavara Burma. Who knows? You know, when somebody, Carolyn, the person who's taking over, is 48, she's got tons of energy. Jeff can tell you. 
She's very, very smart. And after she settles in and has been there a couple of years and really understands the work, then I firmly believe that things can go in directions that I am just simply too old for now and that those directions can be wonderful. So all I have to do is get out of the way. (laughs) Which is why I'm talking about letting go. (laughs) And the the first months of this past year were a very great struggle for me on two counts. Um, I was lucky to be asked to write one of the koan studies for the forthcoming book that uh, Sumun and Florence Kaplow are doing. And I happened to be working with Bada Kundula Casey, who was a murderess. And also the first woman who was fully an arahant when she was ordained by the Buddha. You know, we all know about Angulimala with his necklace full of fingers, you know, from people he killed, and most of us know about Milarepa and becoming a sorcerer and killing off his whole village. You know, and their repentance and their transformation and how they became... Angulimala didn't become such a great teacher, but he did become an arahant. And Milarepa, of course, is one of the major... Tibetan saints. And Bada Kundala Kesa is a bit like that. She's a bit like that. And what I, this, this made me cry, and Jeff can tell you because he was visiting when I was working on this, that Buddhism is not only about realization, it's also about Repentance. And you can clean away the things in your life, in your kama, that have led you to commit harm. And it's okay to let them go. It's really okay to let them go. Now, of course you have to repent. Of course you have to make amends. Of course you have to do all that stuff. But then it's okay to let them go. So my first months were about that, and then I could settle into the process of letting go of the project, which means letting go of all of the bennies that have come from the project. Oh, God, best working in Cambodia. Oh, all that stuff, you know. And uh, I outgrew most of it a long time ago, but we've all got residuals. Uh, And also, it's mine. You know, I made it. I started it from scratch. I started walking into, you know, hospital, the AIDS hospital where people were dying hopelessly in 2000, just me and my translator, you know. Okay, so letting go. Now, I think most of us 
since we've heard about letting go ever since we started sitting. Recognize that wonderful little ping that happens when we let go of something. You know the one I'm talking about? That kind of... And then, of course, we grab onto that thing again so we can get the ping again. (laughs) I do. (laughs) But that little bit of opening into space, into freedom, where fully compassion, compassionate happiness has a chance to begin to enter. My first teacher, who had many problems, um, was also occasionally really brilliant. And I remember early on his saying to me, I said, am I going to have to give up everything? And he put out his fist and he said, Everything you're holding on to is something you can't receive. If you let go of everything, you can receive everything. And I thought, wow. I also thought it was going to be easy. (laughs) Okay, so to begin to focus a little on some of the things that have happened this year for the good. I want to talk about my staff. Those of you who've heard me before have heard year after year after year increasingly just how amazing they are and how stunning they are. Well, I want to talk about my staff and the sutras. (laughs) And those of you who know my staff. (laughs) Okay, I have... We are ten people. One of us is not a chaplain. He does all of the mechanical, etc. work. Okay? Everybody else is a chaplain. Six of the nine have AIDS. All of them have lived through the Khmer Rouge. There is not a person in my project except me who has not lived through trauma that is virtually unimaginable for most of us. Okay. Right. And has been able to turn that trauma around into compassion. That's how we pick them. <laughs> okay. right. At this point, we're pretty good at picking our staff. Um... But most of them have less than a third-grade education. And, you know, we've been through the precepts, and we've been through the paramitas, and we've been through the Four Noble Truths, and then we went through the Eightfold Path. And last year, when we got to mindfulness on the Eightfold Path, I said, okay, I'm not going to rush this. We're doing it all next year. And then last year at the Hidden Villa, Gil taught the four foundations. And I thought, okay, I'm not ready for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so I got all these erudite books on it. And I got Somatera. I got um, Gunaratna. I got all kinds of people. You know, and I'm looking at the, at the nuances of the Pali. And, 
you know, fortunately, I'm also listening to Gil on Audio Dhamma, and he's got a great series from 2003, which is clear and lucid and not weighted down with making it harder. And while I'm on that subject, Andrea Fella is astonishingly brilliant on mindfulness of feeling. The second foundation of mindfulness. I mean, I'm sure there are also people who are brilliant, but Andrea's talks are just so profoundly revelatory that it's, it's just a privilege to listen to them. I mean, Gil, Gil is that way a lot of the time, and we're used to that about Gil. But, uh, you know, I got Andrea on mindfulness of feeling, and I was just so deeply blown away. Okay, but that's not what I want to talk about. 17 minutes into my talk, and I'm almost there. <laughs> a lot of the four foundations were not hard for them. Mindfulness of breathing is something they've practiced for up to 12 years. Seven, the, the shortest is three years. They've had retreats on mindfulness of breathing. They've had retreats on mindfulness in the body. The job was getting them, one, to be able to read the text. And we did a lot of reading aloud. And now every single one of them can read it fluently. Um, in the Khmer translation, they're not reading Pali. <laughs> but they read it in the Khmer translation, and they read it fluently. And for most of them, it's the first thing in their lives they've ever read fluently. Yeah. And the connection at the level of mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing, you know, that was, that was good. They've been studying that and studying that and studying that. Okay. Then we got to mindfulness of feeling, and I need another year working with it before I can really make the connection with them. Then we got to mindfulness of mind states, and it was really far too abstract. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, mindfulness of mind states, the third foundation is when you look at the way you're seeing your experience. Oh, my God, I'm so restless. Well, are you being judgmental? Are you being compassionate? Are you being... How are you being when you look at your restlessness? That's mindfulness of mind states. And I stumbled around and stumbled around, and then the next week I got it, and I said, look, you guys, because they do wonderful meta practice. They've been doing meta practice for a long time, and everybody who's ever come in and given them a retreat, says they've never seen anything like it in meta practice. Because <laughs> that's what our work is. Our work with the patients, you know, every single day we're in there with people who are dying. And our job is to help them understand that they are at the core of the Buddhist compassion. That's our job. And everything we do is designed to help them do that, to get that. So my staff is pretty good on meta. Anyway, I said, you know, when you're doing meta practice, especially for someone difficult, do you sometimes notice that you get angry? 
duh. <laughs> I said, that's mindfulness of mind states, and now you understand it. <laughs> okay, so then we get to mindfulness of dhammas, mindfulness of mind, and the five hindrances are shoo-in. They've had retreats on the five hindrances. My staff, as most of you, some of you know, and many of you have heard me say, are Olympic champions at sloth and torpor. I'm a silver medalist at restlessness and agitation, but I can't hold a candle to them. (laughs) And by this time in the year, I'm kind of settling into letting go. Because something's starting to happen in my teaching. And what started to happen in my teaching around their sloth and torture is I said to them, I know why the standard remedies don't work with you. You know, the sit up straight, open your eyes, blink, go through your body, you know, get up and walk a bit, all those things. I said, you know, all of you have been through levels of trauma that I can only begin to imagine. And what I suspect is happening is that the sleepiness is when your practice begins to edge too close to something that is too unbearable for you and where you don't feel that you have the safety or the time for it. And Rameau, who is my translator and fights with me all the time and thinks I'm probably the biggest idiot ever born, actually came up to me after that class and said, it's like you've been in Cambodia 40 years. You really get us. (laughs) I wanted to cry. (laughs) I met the princess of Thailand a few years ago, and this was worth more. (laughs) Anyway... I'm closing in on it. (laughs) We get to mindfulness of the sixth sense bases. We get to the sixth sense bases in mindfulness of Dharma. You know, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, right? Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, object of mind. And that's the week that our papers came through from the government and we became a legal organization. So, it's Wednesday. Wednesday we do two hours of solid meditation. Then we have a half-hour break where we pig out on whatever somebody has brought. We take turns doing the buying. And then we go back to work with Dhamma class and smoke chanting and all kinds of other things. And I bought them. (laughs) Khmer Bakeries make these unspeakable cakes. They are... (laughs) Jeff is laughing because he knows. (laughs) The frosting is this thick. (laughs) It's white with neon colors. (laughs) It is made, I think, of sugar and God knows what for butter. 
<laughs> anyway, so there's a cake, and it's just this much frosting, and that much not very good cake, and that much very okay. <laughs> so I get one of those, of course, because they love them, and we're celebrating. And I put it in the center of the table, and they sit down, and I say, "Okay, today, you're not allowed to touch anything till I tell you." And they go. But I'm the boss. What can they do? Okay, so I cut it, and everybody gets their piece. And I say, nope, still not allowed. And then I say, okay, take your spoon. Take a spoonful of the frosting and look at it. (coughs) And Pip, my director, is grumbling. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to eat it. I smile. <laughs> and I torture them for another minute. And then I say, okay, put it in your mouth and feel the texture. I'd say, you know, and I'm asking them questions. I'm saying, what colors is it? Is it smooth? Is it rough? You know, where are its boundaries? You know, all this, all this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, holding incipient rebellion at bay by a hair. <laughs> so much fun. Anyway. <laughs> so I say, okay, put it in your mouth and feel the texture, which was a total mistake because it has no texture. You put it in your mouth and it dissolves like shaving cream. I mean, <laughs> I've never put shaving cream in my mouth, but... <laughs> anyway, I say, okay, pay attention to the taste. And then I say, okay, you can relax and eat now, but remember this. Okay. So we finish up and we get into class and we get to the five sense bases. And it's really a very straightforward lesson. You've got the object of sense, you've got the sense base, and you've got the integrative function in the mind. Familiar to everybody or is clear to everybody? In other words, you've got the frosting, you've got your mouth. And your mind is making that connection. And what I said is, where suffering enters is in the way the mind makes the connection. The suffering is not in the frosting. The suffering is not in your mouth. You know, it's like Piep saying, I want to eat it. Well, that's greed. (laughs) It's like the rest of you sitting there thinking, we've already sat for two hours. Why is Lokier, that's what they call me, it means Reverend Grandmother. Um, Why is Lokier making us sit like this and torturing us? (laughs) Of course, all of them laughed because I was right about what they were thinking. (laughs) I said, that's how suffering happens. That's what we're looking at here. We're looking at how suffering happens. And it's not the cake, and it's not your mouth. And it's not even the connection. It's what you add to the connection. And they all got it.
Now, it's one thing, I'm sorry, it's one thing for you as an upper middle class educated group. It's another thing for people who all their lives have been taught they were completely stupid and incapable of understanding anything. To know that they have not only made the connection with what I'm teaching, but with what the Buddha himself said. And what I'm experiencing is that the freedom to play like this comes as I let go of wanting the organization to be anything. And I just simply have more space in my heart for what the organization actually is, for who these people are. So that when we let go, I mean, Bernie was right. He's been really crazy about a lot of things. But he was right about that. You let go. And what you receive is so huge that it's just incomparable. I was lucky enough to have lunch with Blanche Hartman on Friday. What a privilege. (laughs) I was talking about, you know, letting go of the project, right? Everybody knows me because of the project. And I said, well, you know, I'm I'm really ready to let go of the bennies, I think. And she says, well, are you ready to get let go of identity altogether? Trust Blanche. <laughs> For those who don't know it, she know her. She was a, one of Suzuki Roshi's original students. She's 86, and she's a national treasure. Um, and she cuts to the chase. <laughs> Another particular joy of this year has been that we have a group of expats that meets on Sunday mornings. Jeff, Jeff taught them one time when he was in town. And they've been growing. We've got about 30 people who come at any given time. And we've got about 140 on the mailing list. And what's fun there is that I get to work in my own language with people whose histories I understand, not because I've known each one of them for a long time, but because we share culture. So that's been growing this year. And, you know, all of it encourages me really to study the texts because there's all this space now. There's the space in letting go of micromanaging the project. And there's the space in being able to experiment with people, like I'm experimenting with you today. You know, 
Um, I'm still trying to figure out where this talk is going and how I'm going to tell you a little bit about the sadness. And I've hemmed myself in pretty well on that. Um, the situation for AIDS patients in Cambodia continues to deteriorate massively. Uh, nobody knows how many there are. Nobody knows how many are dying. The hospitals are pretty much without resources. But at the one hospital where we work most closely, there are 30 beds. They've cut back from 60. Um, sometimes they're full, sometimes they're not. 40% of the people who come in there five days away from being dead don't even know they have AIDS. They've been sick in the village for months and they haven't gotten better and finally they go to the hospital and somebody puts them in the AIDS ward and they find out they have AIDS and then the family takes them home to die if there's family. Another 40% are people who were successfully on antiretroviral medicines for a number of years and either the ARVs have failed which they do after a time, and there are no replacements. Or, which is more common, they've married again and they don't want their new partner to know they have AIDS so they can't take pills in front of them. Or they've moved away for a job and they can't get back to get their medicines. And, you know, they're sort of okay for a year or so, depending on their general health. And then they get really sick, and the turnaround on those people is maybe 10%. There's about 10% of them that live if they get to the hospital on time. And then there's 20% of people who are just regular AIDS patients who get there and, you know... Um, one little girl I would ask all of you to sort of pray for. There are two little girls, but this one. She's in bed seven at Rusi Hospital, and she's 26 years old. And her arm is full of scars from slashing, both arms. And she's not mentally very capable. I mean, I think she's always been mentally deficient. And I don't know how long ago she was sold, but... What happens in a lot of these brothels is, you know, once you're too sick for customers to be interested, they just give you all the cooking and cleaning to do, and then when you're too sick to do that, they just throw you out on the streets. So by the time we met her, she was curled up in a fetal position with cryptococcal meningitis, which is a it's a fungus that lives in the body and goes into the brain when your immune system is shot, and it is a very, very painful death. And we do a lot to support recovery from that. It's one of our major programs. Um, and she is recovering from the cryptococcal. It's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> but um, she has no place to go and no, place to no one to love her. And she is getting better. And when you walk into her room now, you know, she just beams at you. <laughs> um, 
there are a lot of fundamentalist Christian organizations who'll take her and tell her that Buddhism is evil and all the rest of that. But we don't have a lot of other resources for people in her position. Um, she will get antiretrovirals when she's well enough if she makes it through that far. Um, we have another patient who's dying. Oh, that's the other thing we see a lot of. People with cervical and other cancers who've been on antiretrovirals a long time, the rate of cervical cancer among AIDS patients is six times the average in the United States where people are nourished, where you've got situation of chronic radical malnutrition, it's higher. So a lot of our long-term patients who've taken their pills and done everything they could are now dying of cervical cancer. I have... I used to have my te- staff tested every year at pap smears. Now we're up to every six months because if we can catch it in time, something can be done. But normally it's not caught until it's way past terminal. But my is astonishing. I don't know where she gets it from. She has so much heart. She just has so much heart and so much kindness. And, you know, I have two volunteers from my Sunday group who've learned Reiki and go once a week each. And we give them my to work on because there could be nothing more heartening than to work with somebody who is that intelligent and kind and appreciative. You know, and then we give them our little girl in bed seven, and then we give them whoever else they happen to get that day. But they start with my. She's our teacher. And she should have died eight months ago. And she's still with us, and I told her, I want to see her when I come back. (laughs) Okay. Now, I want to tell you something that's making me sad that I'm really going to ask for prayers about. Um... Some years ago, in 2006, I inherited a little girl. And her, the person we thought was her mother died and made me promise to take care of her. So for two years, she continued to live with her grandmother in the village. And then for a year, we weren't sure what to do with her, and she was staying at an organization. And then Pip, my director's family, adopted her. I said to Pip, you've got three girls already. What are you doing with a fourth? And he said, oh, it's my comma. Both Pip and his wife were orphans. Uh, and they really felt for her. For, so for the last three years, it has seemed to be wonderful. This year, she was third in her class of 55 in school. She skipped two grades. Um, she has become very graceful. She was always going to be a beauty. Um, but she's become gentle because Pip's wife is very gentle, the family, all the kids. She's being raised, has been raised as one of them. And I saw her, what is it, Judy? It's about almost a month now. Yeah. 
about a month ago, and it all seemed fine. And then a week later, she ran away. And she wrote a note during her English class. Her older sister was upstairs, and she was downstairs. They were both taking their English classes, and she wrote a note that said, you know, dear, dear father, forgive me. Dear mother, forgive me. And then each of her two older sisters, dear, forgive me. And then the little one, forgive me. Um, I'm, I'm leaving because my mommy criticizes me too much. And then, you know, there's a little store in front of the house, and she helps manage that. And she says, you should know that so-and-so owes 200 real. And she says, I hope that you're able to get a boy next time and that he is the most beautiful child in the world. And then she took the earrings her mother had given her and she folded it with a letter and she left it with a classmate. And for five days, none of us slept. Her mother cried constantly. Her sisters cried constantly. Piep was out on the motorcycle looking for her from five in the morning till about 11.30 when he would take a nap and then from two in the afternoon till about two in the morning. Um, her aunt um, from the village found her through a fortune teller. They went to a number of fortune tellers, and the last one was correct. <laughs> okay, well, some of them are jerks, and some of them know more than we do. <laughs> I refuse to be anything but agnostic about this. <laughs> um, she found her, and then there was this woman who claimed to be the birth mother, and there's a younger brother who looks like her, so it's possible it's a birth mother, and that, in fact, the person we knew as her mother was a foster mother. They, a lot of this happens informally in Cambodia. And so we set into... She wanted to live with the family, and I, had, I promised her I would not do... I have the papers, okay? The grandmother insisted that I have the legal authority for this child, because she was afraid of one of the other uncles raping and selling her. And she made sure, as one of the last things she did, that I had that power. And I still have that power. So Chuck wants to live with, wanted to live with the mother. And we agreed to that. The Street Children's Organization was supporting that and visiting several times a week. They are excellent. Mitsumlang, the street children's organization in Cambodia, is mind-bogglingly good. Um, and they were terrified because everybody was in one room. And the mother is out doing sex work at night. And the stepfather is not someone you want to be alone with. And then we lost her for two days. We couldn't find her. And then we found her. So as of tomorrow, she's on her way back to the village with her aunt, the one that we trust, and her little brother. And it's not a long-term solution because the schools are not really very good there. And because she's been, she's been a different kind of kid for three years, and it really has changed her. And it's changed her in ways that are quite wonderful. What I think is that two things happened. 
the disparity between the life she led as a street kid and the life she was leading in a disciplined middle-class home was too great. And that ultimately she felt like a failure. And that that's what led her to run away. She didn't run away to her family. She ran away and stayed at a classmate's. So when I get back, everything we're doing right now is to keep her safe till I get back. But if you have any space in your regular prayers for the ill, the dying, those in difficult circumstances, her nickname is Truk, which means piggy. <laughs> her real name is Tida. She's 13 years old. And I wish... I wish I were a person capable of just bringing her into my home and being a mother. But, you know, between who I am and my age, that's not viable. Um, so just send her lots and lots of manda if you can. And that's some of the sadness. Um, we live with the sadness. Last year, what I said is we turned a corner, that my staff was not being harmed by the deterioration anymore. What I've seen this year is that in the face of the deterioration, in, in the face of some really awful events, their strength continues to grow. And it's an honor to be leaving this organization in their hands. Yeah. And if I can let go of it correctly, it will be an honor for everybody who has any kind of contact with it. So I've talked my full 45 minutes and then one. Um, I'm available for questions informally since we need to stop on time. But I would... Do we? Okay, but I would like to thank everybody. I would like to thank you for your practice. I would like to thank you for this beautiful space and the privilege of coming here and for the warmth and the purity of what you create singly and together. Okay, so question? <clears throat> yes. Beth, do you plan? Is it on? Yeah. It's green. Yeah. So, um, Beth, do you plan to stay in Cambodia after you? Um, leave I plan the to be based in Cambodia and spend as much time as I possibly can in Burma on retreat, and in Thailand on retreat and come here from time to time, so I get to see my friend. <laughs> I, I will be on the board of the organization here, so I will continue to have responsibilities. Uh -huh. uh, the transition is going to be a slow one, so that we can do it correctly. Yeah. But moving back to the States, I don't think so. Yeah. 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 Okay. Everybody wants tea. <laughs> okay, tea time. <laughs>